meeting together this last week and having supper one evening, and pastor said, uh, why don't you preach for us this Sunday night, brother? And I said, well, I, I guess I could, because I had a little message in the back of my mind, see, and uh, I thought, well, I, that'll give me an opportunity to preach that. And then he said something I didn't expect. He said, I want you to preach evangelistic. Well, the message that I had was uh, the way that I usually preach. It's concerning the body and some things that I wanted to share, but I thought, well, I'll, I've got confidence in the pastor's leadership. I'll uh, ask the Lord what he wants me to do regarding this evangelistic challenge. And whenever I got to my office, uh, things just began to happen in the Word like uh, they've never really come together before. If somebody were to told me I was going to preach on this topic, I'd have said, no, no, that you're not right there. But I feel like God has given me a message, and I'm anxious to preach it. If you'll turn to Mark, the ninth chapter, we'll use... Verses 42 through 48 is our text. However, keep your Bibles handy. We'll be using the scripture a lot tonight to develop the thought of the message. And if you would, uh, stand with me, please, and we'll read the scripture. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 48. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him than a millstone were hanged around his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the, and the fire is not quenched. And you may be seated. In preaching evangelistically, I started out with a question, why don't people come to the Lord? One answer I had was because they're blinded by Satan. Scripture says, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. So blindness, spiritual blindness, is one reason why people don't come to Christ. The pastor talked about something this morning about not fully repenting or willing to be able to change your mind or your heart about the Lord and about sin, and that would cause people not to come to Christ. I thought of many other things, but what I wanted to address tonight was a thing that's been told me more than anything else in the last two months of people I've talked to. Why don't you come to Christ? And the answer that I get the most, and it's, I think it's because it's the hardest one to come back with, but people say, I just don't feel like it's time for me to be saved. Now, most people who are not right with God realize that they are not right with God, and if something would happen to them, that they're not going to go to heaven. And... The amazing thing is they're not willing to do anything about it because they don't feel like it's time to be saved. But if they will not do anything about their relationship with God, it's because they either have a wrong concept about God or they have a wrong concept about the consequences of not being saved. I'd like to uh, illustrate that in a certain way. Whenever, uh, whenever I was getting ready to go into the... Well, I was in college. Most of you know my testimony. But whenever I went to the University of Illinois, I got away from God. 
so much so that I began to have too much time having parties and doing my own thing. I didn't have time for school. My grades fell, and I got tired of having low grades, so I quit. And I had a choice at that time, because the Vietnam War was on. I had a choice of going into the Army for two years or going into the Air Force for four. And I was pretty sharp, because I realized if I went into the Army, I had a good chance of carrying a rifle in the, in the jungles. And the worst thing I could imagine happened to me was being killed. And I didn't want that. I had another choice. I could join another branch of the service for four years. That's two more years out of my life. That was sure a lot better than being killed. I could be killed in the Air Force, I knew, but I, but I had a better chance of staying alive. And I st- scored well on the exams, and they said, you can pick what you want to do. And I was one of the fortunate ones that got a chance to do that, and I picked what I wanted to do. And that kept me out of combat. The interesting thing to me is that I was willing to do something about staying out of war and combat, but I wasn't willing to do anything about staying out of hell because that's where I was headed at that time in my life. Very interesting, the thing that's in the news today is about the chance of perhaps women having the opportunity to register for the draft along with men. I asked one of the ladies at this church who has a teenage daughter that's approaching that age, Asked her a couple days ago, I said, how are you going to feel when their next birthday, her next birthday rolls around and perhaps she would have the opportunity to register for the draft? And she was just, uh, she couldn't believe that the president would either suggest such a thing. And whether we would agree with that or not, I asked her what her daughter's response was. She said, you wouldn't believe what the girls are saying at school. I said, tell me. She said that they said, if it came down to registering for the draft and going to war, I'm just going to get pregnant. See, now they were really saying the same thing I did going in the Air Force. Different words, of course. (laughs) But they're saying, anything's better than dying, and I'm going to stay out of war no matter what. I'll think of a way to avoid that because, to me, that's the worst thing that ever happened for me to go to war. I'd be willing to say that most of the kids that would say that statement are concerned about staying out of war but are doing nothing about staying out of hell. And that's the irony in it. So that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. The gospel is supposed to be the good news, but the good news implies that there is bad news. And I wanted to talk a little bit tonight about the consequences of not receiving Christ and not being saved. The scripture that I chose for a text uses a word, uses the word hell and hellfire. And I wanted to find out what that meant. So I did a little study on it. There are two words that are used for hell in the New Testament. The first one we usually call Hades. Uh, in the Greek, it's, it's pronounced Hades, but we'll pronounce it Hades because I think that's a how we're used to pronouncing it. Hades is the abode of the dead. That's where Jesus went whenever he was crucified. Jesus descended into hell, the abode of the dead. In Old Testament times, it was a place that was considered to be in the center of the earth. It's called the nether world or the lower regions. And the Hebrew word for it is Sheol. Sheol was divided into two places, Abraham's bosom and the other place was simply called Sheol or Hades. Was not giving a, given a special name. And that's where Jesus said the rich man lifted up his eyes and beheld Lazarus and Abraham's bosom, the other side. In other words, it was the abode of the dead. 
And in Revelation, we find that hell and death will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, that's the second word that Jesus uses to describe hell. You see, the problem we have in the English language is we take two different Greek words and we translate them the same. We think it all means the same thing. Jesus, when sometimes you read the word hell, he's talking about simply the abode of the dead. Other times you read about hell and he's talking about a different kind of place. And that different kind of place is called Gehenna. And that's what he's referring to here in the ninth chapter of Mark. Gehenna refers back to the valley of Hinnom. It's where a place of Jewish apostasy. You can read about that in 1 Kings, the 11th chapter. In 2 Kings, the 23rd chapter, you can read that Josiah declared this place to be an abomination where dead bodies were to be thrown and burnt. So this was a valley outside of Jerusalem where dead bodies were thrown, and it was usually the bodies of non-Jews or criminals, and they were thrown out there, stacked, they were consumed by fire. Jesus referred to that place in verse 47. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and to be cast into hell fire. And that's Guiana, this place of suffering and torment. Now, I didn't stop there. He said that's only a picture of what the real place is because in verse 48 he said, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, which means that it's not just a temporary place that Jesus is referring to. See, the worm here will not die. And the fire here will not go out. The Gehenna, Gehenna is the place of eternal suffering that Jesus spoke of more times than the place or the abode of the dead. And I was curious to find out about this worm where the worm doesn't die. And surprisingly enough, this study about the worm became the real heart of this particular message. And Believe it or not, there are two worms. <laughs> Unless there are two kinds of hells, there's two worms. And I wanted to find out which one that Jesus was talking about here because this worm will not die. And I wanted, I was a little curious about this subject of worms. I've never studied worms before in the Bible. I don't know if you have, but I never had. Jesus, in this particular verse, was quoting from Isaiah 64. And if you, or excuse me, Isaiah 66. So if you would turn to Isaiah, the 66th chapter... You know, Isaiah could have really ended his book in a fine way. He could have ended it on a very positive note. And just to show you that, if you will look at verse 22, which is two verses above the one we're going to refer to, he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth and a place where people are going to rejoice with him forever. Listen to this. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass from that one moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. Amen. He could have ended it right there. He's got one more verse. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be contempt unto all flesh. That's the worm. 
So then I began to do a little Hebrew study on this particular kind of worm, because that's the one that Jesus was talking about. The first time we find this worm is in Exodus. Moses and the children of Israel are going through the desert, and Moses said, when that manna, you find that in the morning, don't take any more than you can eat, except on the day preceding the Sabbath, then you take twice as much so that you can have enough for the Sabbath and not have to work on the Sabbath. Some of them said, well, that's a nice thought, but you know, if we gather two things on uh, Monday, we won't have to do anything on Tuesday. And on Monday night, when they had disobeyed Moses and God, it said that the next day when they woke up, this manna was being consumed by worms. That's the first place we find those kind of worms in the Old Testament. The second place is in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, and the 11th verse. And you'll recognize that the 14th chapter of Isaiah is talking about Lucifer. But the 11th verse gives a description of him and says this, Your pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of the lutes, and the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. So the description of Lucifer is he's covered with these kind of worms. And then we have Isaiah 66, 24, the one we just talked about, where the worms will never stop eating the bodies outside of the city. We have another reference in Job 25 and verse 6, where both types of worms are used in the same verse. Both types are used in the same verse. But before we read that verse, let's just talk about those three that we've discussed so far. What kind of a worm is this? The two kinds of worms, basically, in common colloquial language is this. Uh, the first kind of worm we have no problem with. The kind of worm that uh, if we go out fishing someday, uh, maybe most of the men would not have problems with this. Some of the ladies might. But we could sit there all day long and just put these little night crawlers on and off the hook and no problem, you know. Pick them out of the can, put them on the hook, touch them, you know, let them crawl around your fingers. No problem with that. Or grub worms or you could just any kind of worm that you could put on your hook. Harmless little things. The second kind of worm I was acquainted with just a few weeks ago, last fall before it started freezing real good. I walked in the house one day and I detected an odor and, uh, didn't say too much. You know, I thought maybe uh, Karen was a little slow taking care of the business with the kids. And so I checked that out with her, and she said, no, everything's fine. Everything's up to date. And uh, being curious, I wanted to find out where that odor is coming from. So I checked all of how I couldn't find it. It was seemed to be all over. And so I went down the basement and began to sniff around down there. In one corner of the basement, it was a lot stronger. And it was right behind, uh, or right beside some boards that were covering up this hole. So I pulled the boards off, and I knew I'd located the source. And uh, so I had a little flashlight with me, and it was a crawl space underneath the kids' room, and I was looking back through there. And right down below me, right on the other side of the wall, was a possum. And I didn't know if that was the source of the odor or not, you know. He just laying there, and of course he could be alive and lay there. I didn't know if he was playing possum or not. And I thought if he was, I'm not going to reach down there and pick the guy up, because if I do, then I'll be short one finger. I'm going to make sure he's the thing that's the source of this odor. So I shined the flashlight right on his beady little eye. Nothing happened. Uh, well, that's still no proof. So I began to just examine that possum. 
And then I saw something that I knew he was dead. And you know what I saw? Maggots. Now, whenever I went down to get that possum out of, from underneath the basement, I was very sure that I had a shovel with me and a plastic bag, and that I just never even touched that possum. Because, you see, I can handle fishing worms fine. And I carried that thing outside like this. Because I didn't want to touch those maggots. Now, I'm not trying to be grotesque. This is what the Scripture says. Because though that manna that was being consumed by worms, it was, they were feeding on decayed material. The bodies outside of the city were decaying dead bodies. What other kind of worm you know feeds on that? Herod in the New Testament, we find, whenever he failed to give glory to God, he was consumed by worms, these same kind of worms. And Isaiah tells us that Lucifer is surrounded by maggots. You know why? He's dead. He's very much alive in the prince of the power of the air. I know that. But as far as spiritual things are concerned, there is no life. Nothing. God wants us to see in Scripture the picture of Satan is absolute death on the spiritual side. Being consumed, as it were, by maggots. And then I began to find some things in Scripture that shocked me. You think you've been shocked now? <laughs> Turn to Job, the 25th chapter. This led in to that shock. Verse 4 starts out with a question and the whole thought of this chapter. It's only six verses long. But the whole thought is, how can man be justified with God? And so it asks that. How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of woman? And to make it so it's relative to us, in verse 5 it says, even the moon and the stars are impure in his sight. So how can man be justified? And it describes man. How much less is a man that is a worm? Now that's a little night crawler. And the son of man, which is a maggot. And I thought, first, am I reading that right? The son of man? Jesus is usually referred to as the son of man. He's not lower than man, is he? And there's one final reference to this worm in the Old Testament. And that's in Psalm 22. And I want you to turn to Psalm 22 and begin reading with me. Verse 6. But I am a worm and no man. Now, that's the same worm. I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despised of the people. They that see me laugh me to scorn and they ridicule me. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let the Lord deliver him, seeing that he delighted in God. Does that sound familiar? That is Jesus. In case there's any question in your mind, look at verse 16. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may count all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them 
and cast lots upon my vesture. And in case there's any question in your mind that this is Jesus, just check out verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my grief? This 22nd chapter of Psalms is a description of Jesus on the cross. He's described as lower than a man. The lowest description of anybody in the Bible is Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm. And more than that, he, the person we find described here is reduced not to just a man, but to filth. Where did he get this filth? I thought Jesus was perfect. Why is he surrounded with the same things that Lucifer is? For an answer to that, we pick up the same theme in Isaiah 53. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Why? It's answered in 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the, the filth that he had to become lower than a man was not his. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was our filth. That's the reason why he's described in that way in Psalm 22. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the, the shearers does not speak, as he open, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Now verse 9 is a little hard to understand. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich because he was innocent. But he took upon our guilt. And that's the reason why he was experiencing that filth. I'm still all right in understanding the scripture in Isaiah 53 until I come to this next verse. Isaiah 53.10 just about does it all and just about does me in. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And I just want to say that if God is pleased with this, to see his only son who is perfect to take upon this and he's pleased and he's glorying in it, then I'm almost tempted not to have anything else to do with God because he's not God anymore. His heart ought to be broken. He ought to be weeping at what's happening to his son, not pleased. Isn't that satanic to glory in this? Someone that's innocent? 
being looked upon as the lowest of earth? I want to say, God, don't you realize that's your son? He is to be king of kings. He is to be Lord of heaven and earth. He is to sit at your right hand. God, won't you please weep at what is happening? But I'm smart enough not to try to be God's counselor, but to learn from God because his ways are above my ways. And closing the book is not the answer, but opening it and asking God for wisdom. So to read on, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Now that even makes it worse. God's even taking credit for the whole thing. Not only is Jesus being brought down to the depths, but God is taking credit for it and glorying in it. Why would God do that? Why would he allow the one that created the whole world and all the beauty that we see? And just as Jesus in the said he, he called a, said a little child among them, he was the one that made that little child and made the smile and the twinkle in the eye and made all the mountains where that they were surrounded beside and the ocean and the sea and everything. And God allows him to come to this place. He knew what it, what it was like to experience fellowship face to face with his father. And yet now he is standing alone. No one is with him. No one. His father turns his back on him. And the answer is yet to come. Why would God take pleasure in this? The answer is found in verse 11, but we can't understand verse 11 until we go back to something else. Until we go back to the Garden of Eden. And this is important for our understanding. And I know at this point you're saying, boy, whenever you preach, you preach the whole thing, don't you? Let's look what happened at the Garden of Eden. We like to approach what happened at the Garden of Eden this way. Well, man fell. We approach it from man's point of view. That's true. Man did fall. But what happened with God? See, something happened with God in the fall. His crown prince of creation was meant to give him glory. And because man fell, God's glory was robbed. He no longer got glory from man because he was fallen. And we were eternally made to praise God. And to give him the glory. God literally planned for us a heaven on earth. But because of the fall, that plan was marred and his glory was mocked. And along the way, man was allowed to have certain sacrifices. And they had to be the purest that they could find. And God was pleased with them. And God blessed them. And along the way, men could give God their obedience. And along the way, men could pray and men could fast. And God was pleased and he smiled upon them. But his glory was never regained. Not in the way that he had designed it. You see, he was still not satisfied. And he didn't have his glory back. You see, there was never anything that was good enough for God. Not to get his glory back, that is. Because in the fall, everything was defiled. Animals, man, plants, the whole thing. There was nothing you could bring to God that wasn't defiled in some way or another. No matter how good it looked, it was defiled. It was under the curse. So what we have in verse 11 is the purest thing on earth. 
the only pure thing alive comes to God and alone he walks down the road to the cross, the Via Della Rosa, with people jeering at him and spitting at him and throwing things and cursing him and he comes alone, still pure as any baby alive and he comes to God and just as whenever they brought the, the sacrifices to God, they would, they would put their hand on that sacrifice as if to transfer sin to that sacrifice, and then it would be sacrificed and God would be pleased. And he would forgive that sin. But now, the only one qualified to come to God to get his glory back happens in verse 11. This is the reason why God takes pleasure in seeing him suffer. This is the reason why God has put him to grief because verse 11 says, and he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. <laughs> God is now satisfied. He brings himself. He couldn't even have a priest bring him because he was purer than the priest. And he becomes both the offering and the priest. And God is satisfied. And if God could laugh, I could hear it echo all the way over through heaven. And he says, praise the name of Jesus. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Behold, I will make a new covenant with Israel and with the house of Judah. And I will put my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds. And I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people. For I will have mercy upon their unrighteousness and upon their sins and their iniquities and I will remember them no more. And I say that I will raise you from the dead and you will sit at my right hand forever until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Men can once again live with a pure heart. Men can commune with me in the cool of the day and men can know the glory of God. Hallelujah. <laughs> it pleased the Lord to bruise him. In verse 11, because he was satisfied and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And we glibly say, I don't feel like being saved. Your feelings have nothing whatsoever to do with it. This is the good news. That God would stoop to the depths so that you could once again glorify Him and fulfill that which you were created to do. And Jesus became the lowest of the low because of your filth, not His own. That is love condescending. That love is matched by what Jesus said in Mark 9.48 in the bad news. That there is a place 
It's prepared for the devil and his angels, but there is a place where the worm and the maggots will never die. And the fire will never go out. And Jesus said in that place there will be outer darkness and there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's an old saying that says, war is hell. Well, maybe the closest thing we can come to hell on this earth is war. But in the eternity of hell, war, the greatest war this world will ever know, will seem as child's play. And we are willing to do something about war. And we're not willing to do anything about going to hell. And we're not willing to do anything about the greatest gift that has ever been offered mankind. That's because we just don't see it. But if you can have one ray of faith and hope, a miracle can happen in your life. Job, the 25th chapter, and verses 4 through 6 will make a little more sense to us now. How then can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of woman? Behold the moon that shineth, and even the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less is man who is a worm and the son of man, which is the lowest of the worms? Paul answers that question and those questions in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. For God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And through your life, God can get his glory back and you can live to his glory and to his praise by accepting the greatest gift that the world has ever known. And we say, I just don't feel like being saved. I'd like for us to stand and take your hymnals and turn to hymn 143. We don't use hymn 143 as an invitation hymn, but I think the words will have new meaning for you now as we sing them together. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Had you ever understood that verse before? That was always a struggle for me. But we all need to come to that place of the cross. Jesus used it at the place where he gave his life and where he took upon the sin of the whole world, where he took upon the death and the sin and the filth of all of us. And we can come to the foot of the cross tonight and find life and accept that gift. And I would like to use this hymn as an invitation tonight. Bill's going to lead us. If God has spoken to you and you're willing to do something about going to hell and about this gift that God would want to give you, then I would ask that you would use this as we sing it as your invitation to come and to pray at this altar.
says that drops of grief can never repay the debt. Nothing could ever repay the debt. Our only response is, Lord, here I give myself away. That's all I can do. You know what brings glory to God more than anything else? I wrote it down. It's out of Philippians, the second chapter, the tenth verse. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can glorify God by calling Jesus Lord. And we can do that as we sing this last verse and say, Lord, I give myself away. That's all I can do. And if you've never been sanctified tonight and God has spoken to you, then give yourself away during this last verse. And he will take your rags and give you his riches as we sing together. The drops of grief and everything, the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Is